Writing about crime contains themes and subjects that some may find upsetting. Listener discretion is advised. I want to tell you about Barbara Stoppel. She was born in Winnipeg on August 9th, 1965. Barbara was the third child of parents Muriel and Fred Stoppel. Of the three siblings, she was the youngest. She had one older brother, Rick, and a middle sister named Roxanne. Both siblings had married and left home, while Barbara remained behind, living with her mother and father while she completed high school. She was in grade 10, and it's reported that she did well in her studies, but also was not a wallflower. Barbara was popular, and for good reason. She was considered friendly, soft-hearted, and she got on well with everyone. She was also strikingly beautiful. She liked basketball, volleyball, and roller skating at the Saints roller rink with her friends. It was a popular hangout with young people living in Winnipeg in the 1980s. Barbara was not one of those uncertain types. She was confident and exuberant. She had a solid relationship with her parents. She had a great boyfriend. And she was mature for her age at the time. She was 16. Most of her close friends were older. She related to them better than the girls and guys in grade 10. At that age, she was focused on what career path she was going to follow. Acting. Not the, I'm really pretty and I want to see my name in lights type of girl. She studied acting at the Manitoba Theatre Workshop and was given the lead in her high school annual play after doing well at the tryouts. In mid-December, Barbara added another task to her already busy academic and social schedule, a part-time job. She began working at a donut shop called Ideal Donuts, and her boyfriend Daryl claimed waitressing came naturally to her. Outgoing and friendly, she had a confidence and beauty that was highlighted by her genuine interest in customer service, because she liked people. She would hold conversations with people that hung out at the donut shop for hours. Complete strangers. But she could find that connection immediately and make meaningful conversation. Daryl agreed it could sometimes come off as unintended flirtation, although she was just being Barbara. By Christmas that year, it was a dreary overcast day. It was the 23rd, so people were still out and about, going to work and doing their shopping, getting all their ducks in a row for the coming days. Barbara's job was in a strip mall that was surrounded by different types of shops and had a gas station in the parking lot. The Dominion Center was just by the Norwood Bridge, one that has heavy traffic because it leads in and out of the downtown core. By the time Barbara would leave for work at 3.30, it was rush hour. She would finally arrive at 4 p.m. Her shift was until 9 It was 1981, so in those days, it wasn't considered too strange for an employee to be scheduled alone. And so she was. Her plan was to meet up with her friend Diane after work. Diane was right diagonally across from the donut shop working at the gas station. And when nine rolled around, they had a couple of parties they planned to attend together. Not for nothing. But as this crazy world works sometimes... Barbara had actually traded shifts with another girl and was supposed to be off that night. But the other girl found out she didn't need that night off, so she worked her Tuesday night shift 
and Barbara kept her Wednesday night. It's innocent flip-flopping that just leaves you with that what-if feeling. I hate what-if thinking. It just gets you into trouble for no good reason. So when detectives do it, you know, let their thoughts run around a little, kind of freestyle it with the evidence a bit to see if it jiggles something loose, it can solve a case. But it can make trouble too, for no good reason. And I suppose the only argument for that kind of thinking is when you schedule someone to work by themselves for four hours and what if? I think that's why you don't see too much of that anymore. Well, today I'm going to talk about that exact what if and what came to fruition. So please, don't leave me. Outlined in the book Stopple by Andrew Michalajewski, a retired member of the Winnipeg Police Service who served for 28 years, ranking as detective sergeant. Lorraine Janower was working that evening at the Boots Drugstore at the Dominion Shopping Center, only seconds away from the donut shop. Just after 8 p.m., she walked to the ideal donut shop to buy a coffee to get her through the rest of her shift. As she crossed the parking lot, she saw a man inside, and he was locking the front door. She felt this was odd, and she walked closer to the building, which had large glass windows fully exposing the interior. She recalled that the man was Caucasian, in his early 20s, with a poor complexion and noticeable acne on his face. His hair was brown and unkempt. He had a long, scraggly mustache and sideburns. He wore dark-rimmed prescription glasses and a dark cowboy hat. That cowboy hat seemed to stick out much like his brown cowboy boots with well-worn soles. His jeans were tight-fitting and faded. He seemed to have several layers of clothing on, including a plaid shirt and a hip-length dark jacket with possibly yellow stripes on the left side. He turned around and walked to the rear of the store and into the women's washroom. Upset that perhaps it was the waitress's friend closing early, she returned to work and she called the owner to complain, but there was no answer. Still not satisfied, she called the donut shop itself, and even more alarming, there was no answer. She had just seen a man in the store, and she was wondering to herself, why wasn't anyone picking up the phone? Several minutes later, her husband Norman arrived to pick her up. She was still very angry at what she'd seen earlier, and encouraged him to have a look for himself. He walked over to the front of the shop, where he saw the same strange man with a cowboy hat walk to the front window and flip the sign to closed. The man then exited the store brushing past him while carrying a cardboard box. Don't bother, it's closed, he said. And he continued on his way, past the McDonald's in the far end of the parking lot, Yet a glib smile about him, Norman later reported. This was just too odd. Norman went inside the empty store and he slowly walked towards the women's washroom. All the tables seemed to have been cleaned and appearances were that the store must have been closing early for the night. And why not? It was Christmas. But why was the front door left unlocked? And who was the guy with the hat? During that same time frame, Paul McDougald had been sitting in his truck in front of the GT television store, waiting for his wife to finish shopping. The television store faced the donut shop, 
and he'd arrived just after 8 p.m. He had an excellent view. Between 8.15 and 8.20, he saw the strange man in the donut shop talking with a waitress who was alone. He saw her walk behind the counter by the cash register with him. And then they went back to the back of the store, entered the kitchen area, and they were out of sight. He saw the two both walk to the serving area by the round table, and they appeared to be talking. The man then stopped at the cash register and appeared to do something, but he couldn't make out what. He then went to the front door and locked it and walked to the woman's washroom. About 10 minutes went by and then he saw the same man leave the washroom, crouching down and crawling behind the round counter. His eyes were glued to what he was watching and he couldn't blink if he tried. The guy then stood up casually, walked to the front door, and he slowly turned the sign to closed with his left hand and unlocked it with his right, calmly walking out towards the McDonald's carrying a cardboard box. At that point, Norman, concerned about what he saw, entered the building, and he found that the door to the woman's washroom was shut. He took a breath, opened it, and gasped as he stared looking at a young girl unconscious on the floor. Her head was slightly tilted and pushed up against the wall with her legs fully stretched towards the toilet. Her left arm was pinned under her body, and there was a purplish tinge to her face and hands. There were slight blood stains on the south wall about four inches from the ground. There was also some slight appearance of blood around her mouth and teeth. He needed to take control. That stranger with the cowboy hat must have attacked her. He shouted for his wife to call police and that was when he saw the cowboy running across the parking lot towards the McDonald's. He noticed a young man standing by the doorway wearing a snowmobile suit and yelled at him to quickly go after the man. The man by the doorway was 23-year-old John Doakson. He was selling Christmas trees in the lot of the shopping center that night. He had been to the Ideal Donut Shop for a coffee at 8.35pm and found the door locked. There was no one visible inside. He waited outside for several minutes and then he saw a man with a cowboy hat exit the women's washroom, shut the door, then crouch down behind the counter. He went towards the cash register, stood up, took the cardboard box, and walked out around the counter to the front door. Like the other witnesses, Dirksen had observed the man flip the sign to closed and unlock the front door and leave. Dirksen heard Norman Janowers shouts to go after the man with the cowboy hat and followed him running behind the McDonald's restaurant along the lane beside the shopping center. He had no idea what the man had done, but was determined to catch him. As he passed the Domo gas bar, he armed himself with a baseball bat, but he later discarded it at the front of the Norwood Bridge. He caught up with the man on the bridge and tackled him. They both fell to the ground, and as they struggled on the snow-laden walkway, Dorkson bellowed, What the hell happened back there? He eased his grip on the man as he pleaded his innocence, saying, There's nothing going on, I was just locking up. Confused as to why he was chasing the man in the first place, he let go and he quickly stood up. The man got off the ground and pulled a knife with a seven-inch blade, gesturing at him and shouting, Stay away or I'll throw it at you. Dorkson slowly backed up in fear. 
Moments ago, he was selling Christmas trees, and this was out of his league. He walked back to the Domo gas bar and kept looking back as the man with the cowboy hat continued to run north over the bridge, stopping only once to throw something over the side. Coincidentally, Marcel Glue had been driving over the Norwood Bridge at the same time the two were struggling. He had no idea what the fight was about, and he decided to keep driving by. A decision that would later haunt him for years. Dorkson walked back to the mall and saw police interviewing people outside the donut shop. Instead of telling him where the man was heading, he decided to track him down himself. He hailed the taxi and he tried to find the man that he wrestled with earlier. He instructed the driver to take him over the bridge in what would prove to be a futile search for the cowboy. He then decided this night was too much for him. He wasn't thinking clearly. Perhaps this was the most dramatic event of his life and it seemed to end in failure. The taxi dropped him off at home where he dwelled on the encounter and consumed five beers. Meanwhile, just 15 minutes before Barb's shift was supposed to end, the police dispatcher voiced the high-priority call to the ideal donut shop. A downtown cruiser car requested to be assigned. They were seconds away just over the Norwood Bridge, but they were denied. Police policy required them to stay in their own assigned areas. So again, what if? When the police from the correct district arrived, there were about six people standing outside waiting for them. She's in there. I think she's dead, shouted one woman. Constable Gary Schmidt, who was new in his job, rushed in and he found Barbara unconscious on her back in the women's washroom. She was fully outstretched with her arm pinned under her body in an unusual position. As he felt for a pulse, he discovered a green and yellow nylon twine that was wrapped twice around her neck and tied in two knots. It was embedded so tightly that it hadn't been seen by the ones that had discovered her first. Barbara was still alive and continued to silently choke as she laid on the floor waiting for emergency responders to arrive. Schmidt hastily removed the twine and placed it on the bathroom sink. Ambulance attendants soon arrived and rushed her to the St. Boniface Hospital, which is only seconds away and almost directly around the corner from the donut shop. Black and white police cars descended on the parking lot of the Dominion Shopping Center. In 1981, the police radio quality was far from today's standards. There were no modern supports, like police helicopters and canine service dogs. Without the benefit of video cameras, police would have to rely solely on eyewitnesses to help them in their search for Barb's attacker. None of the witnesses had any idea when they started their day that they would inherit the burden of piecing this tragedy together. Several studies have been conducted on human memory and on subjects' propensity to remember erroneously events and details that did not occur. Elizabeth Loftus performed experiments in the mid-70s demonstrating the effect of a third party's introducing false facts into memory. In the experiment, subjects viewed a slide showing a car accident. Some subjects were later asked how fast the cars were traveling when they hit each other. Others were asked how fast the cars were traveling when they smashed into each other. Those subjects 
questioned using the word smashed were more likely to report having seen broken glass in the original slide. The introduction of false cues had altered the participants' memories. Courts, lawyers, and police officers are aware of the ability of third parties to introduce false memories to witnesses. For this reason, lawyers question witnesses regarding the accuracy of their memories and about any possible assistance from others in the formation of their present memories. However, psychologists have long recognized that gap-filling and reliance on assumptions are necessary to function in our society. For example, if we did not assume that gas stations will always be available, or that the bank will always have money, we would behave quite differently than we do. Psychologists know we are constantly filling in the gaps in our recollection and interpreting things we hear. For instance, while on a flight, we might hear garbled words like pre-boarding, Los Angeles, and identification. Building on our assumptions and knowledge, we may put together the actual statement, this is the pre-boarding announcement for Flight 55A to Los Angeles. Please have your boarding pass and identification ready. Indeed, we may even remember having heard the full statement. So, what is an original memory? This process of interpretation occurs at the very formation of memory. In kind, introducing distortion from the beginning. Furthermore, witnesses can distort their own memories without the help of examiners, police officers, or lawyers. Rarely do we tell a story or recount events without a purpose. Every act of telling and retelling is tailored to a particular listener. We would not expect someone to listen to every detail of our morning commute, so we edit out extraneous material. The act of telling a story adds another layer of distortion, which in turn affects the underlying memory of the event. Once witnesses state facts in a particular way or identify a particular person as the perpetrator, they're unwilling or even unable, due to the reconstruction of their memory, to reconsider their initial understanding. When a witness identifies a person in a lineup, he or she is likely to identify that same person in later lineups, even when the person identified is not the perpetrator. Memory is affected by retelling, and we rarely tell a story in a neutral fashion. By tailoring our stories to our listeners, our bias distorts the very formation of our memory, even without the introduction of misinformation by a third party. Lawyers place great importance on testimony by the other side's witness that favors their own side's case. For example, Defense attorneys make much of prosecution witnesses' recollection of exonerating details. In light of psychological studies demonstrating the effect of a bias on memory, the reliance and weight placed on such admissions may be appropriate. Since witnesses are more apt to tailor their stories, and thus their memories, to the interests of the first listeners. An eyewitness to a crime is more inclined to recount and thus remember incriminating details, especially when speaking to a police officer intent on solving the crime. If later the eyewitness still remembers details that throw doubt on the culpability of the suspect, 
such doubts should hold greater weight than the remembrance of incriminating details. Bias creeps into memory without our knowledge and without our awareness, while confidence and accuracy are generally correlated. When misleading information is given, witnesses' confidence is often higher for the incorrect information than the correct information. This leads many to question the competence of the average person to determine credibility issues. Juries are the fact finders, and credibility issues are to be determined by juries. The issue then arises whether juries are equipped to make these determinations. Expert testimony may not be helpful. Indeed, since the very act of forming a memory creates distortion, how can you uncover the truth behind a person's statements? We can put such questions before the jury entirely without them having fear of embarrassment because the way the jury resolves the questions and in all likelihood the soundness of its answers will remain forever hidden. Perhaps the allure of the black box as a means towards apparent certainty in an uncertain world has tempted us to entrust the jury with more and harder questions than it has the power to answer. The court's reliance on witnesses is built into the common law judicial system, a reliance that's placed in check by the opposing counsel's right to cross-examination, an important component of the adversarial legal process, and the law's trust of the jury's common sense. The fixation on witnesses reflects the weight given to personal testimony. As shown by recent studies, this weight must be balanced by an awareness that it is not necessary for a witness to lie or be coaxed by prosecutorial error to inaccurately state the facts. The mere fault of being human results in distorted memory and inaccurate testimony. The point is that under tense situations, people have difficulties accurately detailing times and events. Even with instant sports replays, there are debates whether a person is safe or out watching the same replay over and over. Back to poor John Duerkson, the Christmas tree seller that tried to catch up with the suspect but ended up at home with no hero's apprehension but some cold beer. About an hour after he gave chase, he called the St. Boniface Hospital to check on Barbara's condition. He knew her only briefly through the shop. He relayed what had occurred earlier, and police investigators were immediately summoned to the area of the riverbank, and they began searching for whatever may have been discarded. About two-thirds of the way down the riverbank, police found the following. Two black-and-white colored gloves lying on the snow-covered ice approximately ten feet apart, with no snow covering them. The left glove was found with green twine, 172 inches in length. The left glove was also found with white facial tissue. They found five pieces of green and yellow braided nylon rope, about a one-eighth of an inch diameter. The size of the pieces were 20, 43, 14, 10 and a half, and 89 inches. These pieces were noted to have been balled up as if removed from a pocket. There was also a 10 by 12 by 6 inch cardboard box and a salmon-colored coffee stick inside the box. There were also possible suspect footprints in the snow, which were noted and photographed. 
News of the attack spread quickly as Barbara's family and friends attended the St. Boniface Hospital to be with her. For the police, the race was now on to find who attacked her, but the suspect had well over an hour head start. Soon, detectives and uniform officers would gather what they could from witnesses, the crime scene, and the discarded items on the riverbank. In the question of motive, it was later determined that $33 was stolen from the cash register, while Barbara's purse still contained $24.75. Was this a robbery gone wrong or a sexual assault where grabbing the cash from the till was an act of convenience? According to author and retired detective Sergeant Andrew Mikhailajewski, the method employed in reviewing investigating criminal cases is by separating the abstract from the concrete evidence. Abstract being existing in thought or as an idea, but not having a physical or concrete existence. Things like eyewitness statements, inferring motives, profiling, and assessing levels of plausibility. Concrete being existing in a material or physical form, not abstract. Things like fingerprints, DNA, video recordings, or a murder weapon. In essence, he claims the more concrete evidence you have, the more certain you can build your case. Suspects can easily be eliminated or convicted by the level of concrete evidence presented. During the initial days of this investigation, the following evidence was gathered by police. These items were filed under abstract evidence. First, Several witnesses assisted in creating a composite drawing of the suspect. The composite itself is a tool for the police in obtaining leads from the public, which in this case numbered in the hundreds. It also served to narrow the search for the suspect, obviously excluding many races, body types, and ages. Secondly, the previously described chain of events provided a glimpse of the suspect's actions prior to the attack and his last direction of travel. Next, police were able to establish a timeline on the events leading up to the assault and during. To accomplish this endeavor, investigators interviewed Barb's family, friends, and numerous other potential witnesses. The results yielded not only a flurry of time shots around the attack, but also many sightings of the possible suspect during that day at the mall itself. The time frame of the suspect's possible activities may sound sort of dry, but they're essential in understanding the sequence around the attack. Myron Zook, an employee of GTTV, observed the man in the donut shop between 8.30 and 8.45 and watched him leave with a box. While Andy Defoe was the last known customer at the donut shop, when he left at 8.15, he recalled that the waitress was alone and talking on the phone. Barb's friend, Darlene Church, later reported that she was on the phone with Barbara at 8 o'clock. The conversation lasted 10 minutes and there was no indication that anything was wrong. Several other witnesses claimed to have seen a male matching the description of the composite drawing and wearing a cowboy hat. Alan Shapiro, the manager of the McDonald's, saw him at his store at approximately 4 o'clock. He described him as a Caucasian, 6 feet tall, 170 pounds, possibly 25 years old, with a dark mustache, round thin glasses, cowboy boots, dark brown cowboy hat, jeans, and a short jacket. 
Bernard Ryu was an employee at the Dominion store and saw the cowboy enter his store at six o'clock. Again, Caucasian, tall, baby blue eyes, dirty blonde mustache and hair, wearing a black cowboy hat, jeans, a checkered shirt, and a tan leather jacket. Kathleen Rowan was an employee at the Norwood Hotel coffee shop, and she saw the mail in her shop at 3 p.m. He was wearing a black cowboy hat and work clothes. Jerry Hinault, who worked at the Norwood Hotel coffee shop, saw the mail twice on this day, once at noon and once at five. He was drinking coffee and reading a paperback book. He was described pretty similarly, 25, 6 feet tall, 150 pounds, slim, brown hair, wearing a cowboy hat, had a mustache, but he said he was wearing a parka with a zipper, fur trimmed with a jean jacket underneath and cowboy boots. The employee at the shoe save, Marina Labossier, observed a male in her store at four. She described him very similarly, with the cowboy hat, cowboy boots, jeans, short jacket. He was in the store asking about cowboy boots, and she said he presented himself in a friendly manner. The manager of that store also saw the cowboy at approximately 3 p.m. She saw him walking in the direction of the McDonald's. She described him very similarly, but she noted that the top of the hat bumped the top of the door when he left. He was also carrying a navy blue tote bag with him, and it had a beige trim. One of the ladies that worked at the florists in the mall said she saw him in her store between 7 and 8. He asked her what time the store was open, and she described him again as 6 feet tall, maybe 6'2", wearing a dark cowboy hat, jeans, and a short black jacket. They spoke to Marion McLean, another employee at the Ideal Donut Shop, and she had the shift that was prior to Barb's on the date of the attack. Before 3.30, she saw the man dressed like a cowboy sitting in the store. He was eating pistachios and commenting on country music. She described him very similarly. Caucasian male, tall and thin, wearing a brown cowboy hat. Finally, Paul Collette, who worked at the McDonald's restaurant, saw the cowboy twice inside. Once at 7.30, where he was drinking a coffee by himself and reading a book, and he was also seen at 8.15, maybe 8.30, he described the man as being, again, Caucasian, 6 feet, 6 feet 2, 150 pounds with a slim but muscular build, mustache wearing a brown cowboy hat, a brown parka with a zipper front fur trim, a jean jacket, and cowboy boots. The initial belief by police that the cowboy who was seen inside the donut shop was in fact the same that was seen several times at the mall. In fact, Marina Labossier, who saw the man at 4 o'clock, was used in creating the composite drawing. The work done by the initial investigators was labor-intensive but produced excellent abstract evidence. The concrete evidence that came to surface was hair samples that were located on the top of the toilet tank in the women's washroom. They were consistent with Barb's hair, suggesting she struck her head on the toilet and may have been knocked out immediately. Apart from slight bruising to the inner portions of both arms and a bruise behind her ear, there were no signs of a struggle. The twine that was found around her neck was the same as the five pieces located under the Norwood Bridge. In fact, 
Six pieces were originally part of the same single piece of twine. Then the gloves that were located under the bridge were a matching pair. The left glove had 172 inches of twine consistent with the twine around her neck. Crime Lab results also found an acrylic textile on the glove that was consistent with Barb's sweater. Thereby connecting the gloves to the attacker, he wore those gloves. The right glove was found to contain a small wooden fragment of paint chips. The colors included light green, silver gray, medium green, dark yellow, dark brown, blue, red, and white. The left glove had the same color paint chips. A soiled facial tissue was found with the gloves and had a dark colored synthetic fiber not consistent with any of Barb's clothing. This suggests it was likely from a suspect. Also, numerous dog hairs were found on her clothing, likely from her cat and dog. A saliva stain was located on the rear of her pants and this was found to be the same DNA in a piece of gum that was located on the bathroom floor and both belonged to Barb. However, Mixed in with the saliva was a small quantity of male DNA. The sample was so minute it couldn't be used to confirm the donor's identity. While this sample may have belonged to the attacker, it may also have belonged to the medical staff or police. There was no other evidence of male DNA on any other exhibits. Three unidentified palm prints were lifted from the middle of the door near the crash bar. These prints may have been made by emergency personnel or customers, but they also could have been made by the suspect. Another right index fingerprint was lifted on the donut shop door near the locking mechanism. Once again, it may have been made by the suspect, a customer or emergency personnel. Police worked diligently for leads as Barb lay unconscious in the hospital. Her mother held vigil by her side day and night until December 29th at 9.30 a.m., when she was pronounced dead. The cause of death was strangulation, and this was the beginning of years of grief for the Stoppel family. Meanwhile, police were under intense pressure to apprehend the killer, both from the media and the public. The current mayor, Bill Norrie, went as far as to write a letter to the Stoppel family, assuring them that they would do everything they could. The police department authorized an $8,000 reward for any information leading to the arrest and conviction of the person responsible. Well, I think we're going to stop it there, but on the next episode, we're going to get into the first suspect. Thanks again for joining me, and we'll see you again soon with part two of the Barbara Stoppel case.